And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel 6, if you're new with us, we are working our way through the book of 2 Samuel here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And for the last couple of weeks, we have been studying David's attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem so that the worship of God could become the focus of the nation once again. It hadn't been for many years. And uh, the ark, as we have said, represented the throne and the presence of God on the earth. And David, you know, being a man of worship, wanted the ark in his new hometown and capital of the nation, Jerusalem. They had just conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And so David, as a man of worship, the first thing he wants to do is bring the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem, which would now become the center of the entire nation as its capital. And the people would be now focusing on God once again, and God would then in turn bless their worship. And uh, so David decides, well, the first thing he's got to do, he's got to go get it. It's been in the house of Abinadab for over 70 years, okay? So he goes down there to get the ark to bring it up. But in his haste, I, I don't know what he was thinking, but in his haste to do a good thing, it was a good thing to bring the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. That was good. But as we have said, you have to do a good thing the right way if God's going to honor it and bless it. But David, in his haste, you know, went ahead and didn't read the instructions God had given for transporting the ark. God made some very specific instructions given to Moses about how the ark was to be transported. Never looked at, never touched. It was to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites, a specific family, the Kohathites, uh, when it was to be transported. Covered first of all, then picked up and put on the shoulders of the Levites, Kohathites. Uh, that's how it was to be moved. David didn't do it that way. Maybe he didn't think it was necessary to get real into details. Let's just go get it. So he puts it on a new cart like the Philistines did when they moved it. And of course, as we saw, as they were leading the thing, it was a parade, a big parade, right? And uh, two of Abinadab's sons, Ahio was in front of the uh, cart. Two oxen were pulling the cart. Uh, Uzzah, another son of Abinadab, was on the side of the uh, cart. And uh, at one point, the... Uh, oxen, as we have said, uh, stepped in a rut or on some kind of a rock. Well, they stumble. The uh, cart is jerked. The ark looks like it's going to tumble off into the dirt. Uzzah reaches over to grab it to steady it, and God strikes him dead. Well, as you can imagine, the party was pretty much over. Uh, David was furious with the Lord. Uh, he calls God an adversary, names the place Perizuzah. Perez is a Hebrew word that means an enemy has attacked us, attacked Uzzah. Just he just was so incredibly devastated. Here they are trying to do a good thing for God, and here's how God treats us. The party's over. Put the thing in the house of the nearest Levite, uh, Obed-Edom, and I'm going home. So that's what happened. And um, David gets word after about three months or so that God has been blessing the house of Obed-Edom because of the ark. So David is encouraged to try again. This time, though, he studied the scriptures, found out what God said, and he has the Levites take the ark on their shoulders and transport it to Jerusalem. And God uh, honored it because they were obeying God. God blessed David's effort. And uh, we have studied that in the last couple of weeks. But uh, as we said when we studied the passage, David was seeking to worship God. He wanted to be a worshiper. The first time he was rejected, and then, of course, the second time, as we have said, he was accepted by God. Listen to me. 
indicating there is a right way to worship and a wrong way, an acceptable way and an unacceptable way to worship God. We just sometimes think that no matter what we do, not maybe this group, but people in general who go to church, they think they can worship God any way they want and God should accept it. That's not true. Later on, Jesus would say the Father is looking for true worshipers, but those that seek to worship him must, underline that, worship in spirit and in truth if it's going to be accepted. So there is a must there, which is the right way, implying there is a wrong way, okay? What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Well, depending on who you talk to, to worship God in the spirit means to jump around and swinging on chandeliers in the church and just get crazy, okay? Because the more crazy we get, the more the spirit's moving. We're worshiping God in spirit. Jesus didn't say that we are to worship God in the spirit. He said we are to worship God in spirit and truth. What he was saying is the only way you can, first of all, be an acceptable worshiper of God is to have the Spirit of God inside of you. You must be first born of the Spirit, born again, John 3. When you receive Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, at that instant the Spirit of God comes in. The Bible says you are now born from above or born again. The Spirit of God is inside you. That is the only way you can offer God acceptable worship. You can't, and, and many unbelievers go to church and offer God all kinds of worship. God doesn't accept it. The only prayer God will accept from an unbeliever is, be merciful to me, a sinner. I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. God will never turn a person like that away. He will always answer that prayer. But once you receive Christ, now you are technically a worshiper. That's your designation. We don't have time to get into it, but that's the reason you were created, was to be a worshiper. All right? But now you have to worship God in truth also, which means you have to go to the Bible. You have to find out what God has said is the proper way to worship him. Now, we've got studies online, true worship. You can go online and pull it down and listen to it. I'm not going to get into the whole thing today, although I will touch on a few things because that's where we are. But David was now worshiping God. The second attempt, we see God accepted it. David was now worshiping God in spirit because he's a spirit-filled guy. We know that. Just that he wasn't following God's prescribed way of doing this thing, transporting the ark. Now he reads the scriptures and is doing it in truth. So now we have a picture of David being a true worshiper. However, not everyone was happy with his display of worship. Verse 12, the middle of the verse. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. We talked about this last week. I'm just reviewing a little bit. Verse 14, Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and this was David's wife, by the way, one of his wives, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Why did Michal despise David? As she looked through the window and saw him out there dancing and leaping and twirling with joy as he worshiped God. Because I believe, guys, she was an unbeliever just like her father, Saul. 
Unbelievers will never understand the depth of love and joy that is expressed by spirit-filled believers in worship to God. They don't get it. They don't get it. They never will without the Spirit of God in them. They will always criticize and ridicule and mock with sarcasm those who truly and sincerely worship the Lord. And for those of you who are married to an unbeliever, the devil will use them to try to bring you down, especially when you're on a spiritual high. Usually a spiritual high associated with some event like a retreat or a worship service where God has moved the Spirit of God has been so powerfully present. You've been worshiping God. You're so filled with the Spirit. It's a spiritual high, right? Some of you ladies, you go to your retreat, right? And uh, it's an awesome experience. God is moving. People are getting saved. Uh, it's awesome, right? It's a mountaintop experience. Then you come home, and there's always a demon-possessed valley waiting for you after you've had a mountaintop experience. Your husband hasn't washed the dishes for three days. The kids haven't been bathed. You know, the house is a wreck. And you come off that spiritual high pretty quick, don't you? It's like, it reminds me of Jesus when he's up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, right? Moses and Elijah appeared. I mean, it was a phenomenal experience. Peter wanted to just live up there. Lord, can we just stay up here? I'll build some booths. We'll just live up here. We all would like to live on the mountaintop, right? But that's not where we grow. So what happens? Jesus brings his guys down into the valley, and there's a demon-possessed kid waiting for him. All right, it's just the way it is, all right? It just, so, you know, may God give you ladies grace, especially. Guys, don't do that to them when they come back from retreat. Make sure everything is clean. Make sure the blessing continues. But I want you to notice how David was on a spiritual high after a glorious day of worshiping the Lord and bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. But I also want you to further notice how McCall, his unbelieving wife, immediately poured sarcasm and criticism upon him for worshiping God. Now, guys, this is very typical of the devil, who will try to use unbelievers in our lives, or even sometimes carnal Christians, to bring us down after a mountaintop experience with the Lord. Here, McCall accuses David of uncovering himself in his worship of God. David, some people think, well, he was naked. No, he was wearing a, a linen ephod, okay, David uncovered himself in the sense that he took off his royal garments, which set him apart as king. And he danced in an ephod, like an undergarment, like a commoner. This was an act of humility on the part of David. He stripped off his royal robes of honor and prestige as king of Israel to humble himself before the king of kings in worship. He was right to do that, completely right, because worshiping God, listen, requires humility the proud cannot worship god and god knows the heart but only those who have a heart of humility can offer god acceptable worship he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble you know as a secular person mccall thought this display you know on the part of david was vulgar and beneath him as king her words imply the following any low life immoral drunken fool david can dance around like an idiot, but such actions are not fitting for a king. Whenever we seek, guys, listen to me, whenever we seek to be worshipers, there will always be those who want to mock us. Those like McCall who think that the kind of absolute abandon involved in true worship, listen, is embarrassing, humiliating, and even disgusting. 
David here is demonstrating a heart, listen, of true worship, much like Mary of Bethany did so many years later. Turn to John 12. David here is being an example of a worshiper. That's true. But of all the people in the Bible who exemplified a life of worship, I think Mary of Bethany has them all beat. And I won't develop this passage in detail or in depth because we have done that in other places. You can go online and listen to our study, True Worship, if you really want to get into the subject of worship, which I encourage you that you, you do that. But in John chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who um, had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. So Lazarus was there. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary, these were a brother and two sisters, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary were all family. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Mary's worship, guys, was humble and, listen, even humiliating. Most people would have been embarrassed to kneel in public with everyone watching and anoint the feet of Jesus, wiping them with her hair. You know, I get the impression it didn't matter to Mary because she was so in love with Jesus and was so totally lost in her adoration and worship of him that at that moment, he was the only one in the room for her. They tell me that in that culture at that time, a woman never let down her hair in public. She only did it in front of her husband in the privacy of their own home. It was a very intimate act. But I really believe Mary had no problem doing that because in her heart, she was already married to Jesus. He was her first love. But something you need to understand, 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen says, listen, that a woman's hair is her glory. So Mary gave her glory to wipe the feet of Jesus in an unguarded moment of worship and devotion, much like David, who took off his royal robes, his glory, to humiliate himself, you might say, in public worship to God. Guys, this brought the criticism of McCall upon David, much like Mary's humiliation and sacrifice in worshiping her Lord brought the consternation and criticism of Judas upon her. But before I look at that, before we look at that, let's first look at what it cost Mary to worship Jesus, okay? When Mary of Bethany broke open that alabaster flask of precious oil of spikenard and poured it upon Jesus, preparing his body for burial, we are told, she became, I'm convinced in my heart, she became a living illustration of what a life of worship is truly all about. And again, I can't, don't have time to develop the whole thing. You can go and listen to our study on true worship or there's other places we can direct you to where we develop this in detail. But I believe Mary of Bethany was a true worshiper. What can Mary of Bethany teach us about the nature of worship? Well, first of all, she teaches us that worship is often costly. Worship is often costly. Again, verse 3, John 12, verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. It cost Mary something very precious to worship her Lord in this way. We are told that this pound of spikenard was worth 300 denarii, which is about a year's wage. About a year's wage back then. 
Mary gave the most precious thing she owned to her Lord in worship, oil of spikenard. You say, well, what is that exactly? Well, spikenard was made from something called nard. Good enough, we'll move on then. All right? <laughs> Uh, nard, from what I understand, was an herb that grew up in the Himalayan mountains between China and Tibet. It had to be brought out on the backs of camels down the Himalayan mountains all the way back to Israel, where it was made into a costly perfumed oil and placed often in one of these alabaster flasks and then sealed. It was a very costly procedure and yielded a very precious commodity. As we said, this pound was worth almost a year's wage. Something you may not understand from just a casual reading of the passage, though, and that is that many believe that this oil of spikenard was probably Mary's dowry, her dowry. In those days, if they wanted to make an investment for the future, there weren't any stocks or IRAs or savings bonds, so instead they would invest in gold, silver, precious stones, and sometimes in even precious oils and ointments like this spikenard. This is apparently what Mary had done, she had made a very costly investment in this spikenard as a, uh, to save it as a dowry. Now, her, her parents were dead by this time, so, you know, her dad could not give the dowry, so she had no doubt laid this up for herself, but in an act of true love and devotion, an act of true worship. She broke open the flask. You didn't unscrew it. There was no, no way to unscrew it. It was sealed. If you wanted to open it, you had to break it open and use all of it. It says a life of worship is not to be measured out. It's to be poured out completely on Jesus, which is what Mary did in type. She opened it, broke open the flask, and poured all of it onto Jesus, anointing his head and his feet. To the world, or listen, even to the average Christian, her worship seems extravagant and even extreme. Even extreme. But when you're talking about worshiping Jesus, can anything be too costly to give to him in light of what he gave for us? And Mary didn't think so. And if this was her dowry, guys, which I believe it was, then culturally speaking, it meant that she was pretty much giving up any hope of ever getting married and having a family. You see, in that culture, a woman without a dowry wasn't likely to find a man willing to marry her. I mean, what a tremendous sacrifice Mary made to worship Jesus. Look at what it cost her. As we said, worship is often costly. And that's why worship is often criticized. John 12, verse 4. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is Judas, right? Look, when you begin to worship the Lord, there will often be those in your life, like Judas, who will criticize you for wasting your resources, wasting your time, wasting your life in service and worship to the Lord. You know what? These are the first recorded words of Judas in the Gospel. The first recorded words of Judas in the Gospels where he says, well, you know, why was this fragrant oil, you know, why was it wasted on Jesus? And not sold in the money given to the poor. In fact, Matthew tells us the other disciples chimed in when they heard Judas say this. and said, yeah, yeah, why this waste? Why this waste, right? John adds in verse 6 of John 12, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He held the money box and used to dip into it. All right? Sounds like some politicians we see today. Talk a good talk, right? 
It's all about them. Judas was all about Judas. All right? He was not a worshiper. In fact, I think one author nailed it when he said this about Judas, and I quote, Judas was the great tragedy of humanity, and his life serves as a solemn warning to all who, would, who superficially attach themselves to Jesus, yet whose hearts are far from him. Hearts that are given over to materialism and selfishness, and who are lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, who come on Sunday and offer Jesus a kiss, yet who betray him all week long. The church is full of selfish religious hypocrites who can never understand the depth of the love and sacrifice involved in true worship to God. The self-abandonment and extravagance so freely poured out to him by those who truly love him always incenses the selfish, greedy, religious hypocrite who feigns love for Jesus but in actuality loves themselves above all else. Like Judas, so close to Jesus and yet so far away. Can you imagine the remorse and agony he must be experiencing at this very moment? It must be beyond belief. Living in the light but dying in darkness, he is doomed to spend eternity in the blackness and torment of hell forever. End quote. Again, Judas was never a true worshiper, which means he was never a genuine believer. But he was sure critical of those who were, like Mary. I mean, when you come to a place where you want to go all out for Jesus, I pour your entire life out for him. You want to go all the way, making a total commitment to serve him, worship him, love him with all your heart, with all your life. You will always run into those who will say to you, and sometimes, unfortunately, they're people in your own church. Why this waste? You know? I mean, why are you going to waste your life as a pastor or a missionary or, you know, uh, for some other full-time Christian position. I mean, have you lost your mind? You don't have to be a fanatic and then, you know, just fill in the blank. I hate to break it to these folks, but being a fanatic is what being a true worshiper is all about. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 1? You have to turn there. He said, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. I mean, Jesus gave his life for us. How can I say to him, Lord, I don't want to be a fanatic, though, as a follower of yours? Paul says, let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him, end quote. And so the idea of putting the Lord first and offering our lives to him as living sacrifices every day is the life of a worshiper. It is a radical, fanatical way of life. And yet... Even those of us who love the Lord and believe in a life of worship, sometimes even we can stumble at the cost some people are willing to give up to really worship the Lord. Uh, several years ago, uh, my wife and I were in Indiana for a pastor's conference. Pastors and wives were there. And uh, we were standing in line waiting to get into the mess hall. It was lunchtime. And uh, we saw a couple in front of us. He was older, she was younger. Uh, they had just gotten married, and he had been uh, a businessman and had um, been very successful building a company. I mean, he was a wealthy guy before he got saved, and then the Lord called him into ministry, and I think he may have given everything up. But we were talking, and they, they were not married that long, but they had a young baby, and uh, he said, the Lord, we're talking now, right? He's talking to me. He said, we feel the Lord has called us 
to go into the inner city of Detroit and start a Calvary there. Now, your pastor, being the great man of faith and, and all that I am, in my heart, I said to myself, are you out of your mind? You're taking a family into inner city Detroit. It's a war zone there. I mean, I didn't say that to him. I'm thinking it, though. The Lord knew what I was saying because he spoke to me. He says, knock it off. It's a paraphrase, but that was the gist of it. Knock it off. These people are serving me. I'm leading them into this ministry. I'll take care of them. But it's like sometimes even we who believe in giving all for Jesus. We look at some people who are willing to give so much, and we're like, wow, I mean, that, that seems a little extreme. And then the Lord says, oh, oh really? And, you know, throws your own words back at you, right? I had to repent. Uh, told the Lord I was sorry, but, but wow. That, that couple really, really impacted me. But, you know, I hear the same kind of criticism and condemnation from McCall towards David's act of worship that I, you know, hear from Judas towards Mary's act of worship. Not the same words, the same heart, the same spirit. Back in 2 Samuel 6, verse 20, Then David returned to bless his household. And McCall, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Paraphrase. That's what she's saying. Well, didn't you put on quite a show today, taking off your clothes and dancing around like some pervert, exposing yourself in front of all the young girls? Here's what David said, verse 21. So David said to McCall, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father uh, and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. Look, David didn't let McCall's sarcastic criticism ruin his day. He basically explained to her that God chose him to be king of Israel in place of her father Saul. Why? Because David was a worshiper, whereas Saul was not. And he says to her, look, as a worshiper, I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what others think about me. It doesn't matter to me. And if I have to humiliate myself even more to worship God, I'm going to do it because worshiping the Lord is the only thing that matters, not my honor, not my dignity, and so on. Now, let me balance this out as we bring it to a close because I, I have to balance it out. Uh, there are those who have read this passage and have come to church and have basically come against the leadership because we won't let them dance and leap and twirl around the room. Because after all, David was worshiping the Lord, and you're keeping us from worshiping. Look, in this context, David was justified in dancing, leaping, twirling in his worship of God. It was an outdoor festival of worship. And I'm convinced there were a lot of people dancing and leaping and twirling and worshiping God. And look, if you find yourself a nice outdoor worship festival somewhere and people are dancing and jumping and having a good old time, dance and jump and roll around, whatever you want to do. Or if you're at home, put on worship music and you can dance and leap and twirl all you want. You just can't do it when you come to church here for a normal church service because we're not all dancing and leaping and twirling, okay? And if you're the only one doing it, you're going to distract everyone else from worship. And that is what the problem is. 
when people want to basically do whatever they want to do in their worship of God in a public setting, and especially a church like this, all right? Our worship is more reverential than it is jumping on chairs and on tables and things like that. I mean, I have no problem with that if that's the church you feel comfortable in and, and, and everyone's doing it and you like to worship that way, that go for it. But if you have a church that is more low-key in the word, more reverential, if somebody gets up and starts dancing and twirling and leaping, guess what? You guys are no longer worshiping God. You're looking at this person. And now this person has become the object of attention, not the Lord anymore. So that's why we don't allow this, okay? Now, again, you know, you want to dance and twirl and leap and all that great. Do it at home. It's fun. Uh, no problem with that. But uh, if you start dancing and leaping and twirling here during worship, Pastor Mike will escort you out. <laughs> and don't think he won't do it. But as I said earlier, I believe McCall was an unbeliever. Well, David was a spirit-filled worshiper. And this brought a lot of conflict into their marriage. The conflict of being unequally yoked together. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul the Apostle said this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He's talking about marriage now. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Maybe some of, you are, some of you here this morning are unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You didn't realize he or she was an unbeliever when you first started dating them or when you married them. He told you he was a Christian. She went to church with you. They read the Bible with you and generally acted like a Christian. That is until you married him or her and then they stopped playing the part and revealed their true self to you. And now you realize you are married to an unbeliever. Or maybe, this happens a lot, you got married to each other when both of you were unbelievers. And then at one point you got saved. But your spouse did not and is not. So now what do you do? Now what do you do? You find yourself unequally yoked with this person, what do you do? Well, here's what you don't do. You don't do what David did. See, he punished Michal for her mocking sarcasm rooted in her unbelief and disdain of worship. In verse 22, we read, But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. What does that mean? It means that David punished Michal by never having sexual relations with her the rest of her life. She was childless at this point. Could have had a children if David would have had sexual relations with her, but he decided this is how he would punish her and uh, said, you know, basically, you know, you say that I uh, made a fool out of myself in front of the young women here. Well, I'm going to be honored by them because they respect me, whereas you don't. And therefore, David said, you will not have any children now. I will not have any sexual relations with you. Probably didn't have any contact with her at all the rest of her life. So she never had any children, which in that culture was a very great tragedy, a great shame. I think personally this was a cruel thing for David to do. However, it might have been justified in the face of her disgust of him and total lack of respect for him as her husband and as her king. So maybe it was justified. However, listen to me. 
what may have been justified for an Old Testament king isn't justified for a New Testament Christian. So how do you, as a New Testament Christian, deal with being married to an unbeliever? Well, the first thing you do, guys, you go to God's Word and find out what He has said you are to do. Very important. I mean, if you're going to honor God as a true worshiper, you must obey what God has said, not what you feel, not what others are telling you to do with regard to this unbeliever you're married to. Remember that on David's first attempt to worship God, he failed. Why? Because he didn't follow what God had said in the Scriptures. He did it his way. He had good intentions. But you know what? The road, the end doesn't justify the means. And the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The idea is that, you know what? Again, if you're going to do something good, that's great. Do it the right way. And David didn't do it the right way. He tried to worship God, did not do it God's way. God rejected it. Then the second time he studied God's word, did it the way God had commanded, and God blessed it. Look, we are to follow what Scripture says. Not what anyone else is telling us to do. What does Scripture have to say about those Christians married to unbelievers? And we'll just bring this to a close very quickly because we'll save the rest of this for, for next time. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. This is what Paul has to say on the subject, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course. In 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 12, somewhere in the middle there, Paul said, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Skip down to verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Let me paraphrase. And I know this is anathema in this culture of, of Christianity. It really isn't about our happiness. It's about God's glory. And Paul is saying, if you're married to an unbeliever, that's not an easy thing. But stay with the person if they're willing to stay with you. Because how do you know if God won't use you to touch them and bring them to Christ, which is the most important thing, their eternal welfare? Not your temporal happiness, their eternal welfare. He went on earlier to say, look, as a, as a Christian, your spouse is put in a special place of blessing because of your relationship with God, your unsafe spouse is. They see you relate to God. They see God blessing you, answering your prayers. Because they're so close to you, whatever blessing God pours on you will spill over onto them. This will put them in a special place more than anybody else where they would come to Jesus because of what they see. How do you know? God isn't allowing it that you might be used to save them, is the issue. But today, I, I am shocked, not so much by the average Christian, because the average Christian doesn't even know their Bible that well. And if they do know the Bible a little bit, often they're not willing to do what God has said anyway, because they're carnal. I am shocked and appalled at how many pastors are telling people things that are flat out unbiblical. Why? Because they want them happy. I mean, I had a gal come to me and say, who was married to an unbeliever, I went to my pastor, and my pastor said, just divorce him. Because God wants you happy. And I thought, wow. Wow. God wants me holy. God wants me obedient. 
God wants me to die to self, take up my cross to follow Jesus, who didn't do what he felt. He did what God, his father wanted. God's command to you is, if you're married to an unbeliever, and they're willing to, to live with you, to stay with you, hang in there. Hang in there. But understand, understand, if you're going to obey God and hang in there, you can't give God a timetable while you've got one foot out the door. All right, God, you got two weeks. You better, you better save this bozo, because I'm telling you what. In two weeks, I'm out of here. I got the door cracked, one foot out the door, I'm ready to go. You can't do that. I, you know, I, and I know there's always people who will say to themselves, Pastor, I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to divorce this guy because I'm unhappy. And I deserve a strong Christian spouse, blah, blah, blah. You know what? If that's where your heart is, I'm not talking to you. Because you've already made up your mind. I'm not talking to you. You do what you feel you need to do, and you'll stand before God and give an account. I'm talking to the worshipers here. Those people who want to honor God, who want to do the right thing. This is such an important subject, and so many people find themselves in this situation. I want to devote the next message to this topic to finish what I'm calling part two of a message I've entitled Unequally Yoked. And no doubt we'll have things in there. So if you're not married to an unbeliever, don't say, well, I'm not going to church that way because it doesn't affect me. Well, maybe you got a friend who's, you know, in this situation that you can encourage. And we'll have other things in there. It won't be all, all about being married to an unbeliever. But uh, I know there's a lot of men and women who are married to unbelievers, and it's a very, very difficult thing. They need encouragement. They, they need God's strength. So we need to pray for them, but let's take another week to explore this subject. And uh, the week after, uh, we have our special speaker come out to teach us about Islam. We will then revisit this subject again and finish what I'm calling part two of a message entitled Unequally Yoked. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace, your mercies which are new every day. And Lord, you're so good to us. Jesus, you've given us so much. You've given us everything. You laid down your life for us that we might be saved. And now you ask us, will you live for me? I have given my life for you. Will you now live for me? Will you obey me? Will you do what I'm telling you to do that I might receive glory and people might be saved, even if it means that you are not always as happy as you'd like to be, but you are willing to lay yourself on the altar of sacrifice that I might use you for my glory. Oh, Lord, give us grace to do that. In this self-focused, crazy culture that we live in, where everybody thinks it's their right to be happy no matter what they have to do to get that happiness, give us grace, Lord, to return to the Word of God, which says that your main desire for our lives is that we be obedient and holy, that you might use us for your glory. So give us grace to do that, Lord, and ask you to continue to bless this study. In Jesus' precious name, amen.